Good morning, everyone, and good morning, church family. It's so good to be back together with you again. And can I also say, if this is your first time watching our live stream, or if you've been tuning in for a while and you've never been to the actual physical church, I just want to extend a very warm welcome to you. We are so delighted to have you joining along with us. Well, today we are finishing our sermon series called When People Meet Jesus Face-to-Face, and today we're finishing off by looking at Jesus' encounter with Saul on his road to Damascus, and James is going to walk us through that. So we're looking forward to that. I want to invite you, if you have a Bible near to you and you'd like to take that out and turn to Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19, we're going to read that together. Again, that's Acts chapter 9, verses 1 down to verse 19, and the scripture will appear on the screen next to me as well. One more time as everyone is turning, Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Starting in verse 1, we read these words, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized, and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Well, let's listen in to James. Well, good morning, everyone. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had those moments where you recapture the goodness of something, where you recapture the goodness of something. Now, here we go. This this is a can of baked beans, my most favourite food in the entire world. Now, unfortunately, I, I live in a household where I don't get to eat beans very much because no one else in my house is as crazy about them as I am. 
So I eat them once in a blue moon and when I get to eat them, I suddenly remember mm, how delicious they are. Hot or cold, mm, I could just eat can after can after can. And, and when I eat them, I suddenly remember why I love them as much as I do. I recapture mm, something of the goodness. And maybe you, you have the same thing with your favorite food. Maybe you, you don't eat it that often, but when you do, you find yourself thinking, my goodness, I love this. Or maybe it's, it's when you go to your favorite restaurant and you get that dish that you love and you think to yourself, I, I remember. You recapture something of the goodness. Now, in relationships, it can happen too. When you spend time with someone you don't get to see very often and you think to yourself, now I remember why we are such good friends. Because you recapture the goodness, don't you? I think about the the favorite place you like to go to with that landscape or that view. And when you see it, you remember, oh yeah, this is good. You recapture the goodness, don't you? Now this morning, I want this to be about recapturing the beauty of something, a special concept, a special experience, a special reality in the life of a follower of Jesus. And it's this, it's conversion. Now, it's a word. Conversion is a word we use to describe becoming a Christian. The, the moment of transformation, going from a life that doesn't follow Jesus to a life that does follow Jesus. It, it's when we respond to Jesus by turning from self and sin and trusting in him. Now, I know there are lots of different thoughts when it comes to the word conversion. I mean, some people love it because it gives a really simple definition about what it means to convert to Jesus. Maybe other people think, think the word's a little bit old school and it's outdated language. Well, this morning, wherever we are in the word and the concept of conversion, I want it to be a capturing or a recapturing of something very beautiful. I want us to recapture the goodness of the whole concept and the experience of conversion. This really is an amazing thing. Now, before we get out of the gate and begin to dig into Acts chapter 9 this morning and see the conversion of Saul the persecutor, <coughs> excuse me, I, I, want, I want us to, to recognize a very, very important point. And it's this, that it's not helpful to go around comparing our stories with other people or expecting our stories to be the same as everyone else's. Indeed, the same as the as Saul the persecutor, as he is transformed. It's not helpful to go around comparing our stories with everyone else. I mean, even within the Bible, we find that conversion stories can be very different. And when we compare our stories, it can begin to lead to some misleading ideas. Let me give you an example. When I was in my late, mid-teens, I, I asked a friend about what it meant to follow Jesus. He was a Christian, and in my mind... I wanted to understand a little bit more about what it was he believed and how knowing Jesus made an impact on his life. And I can remember in this conversation, thinking back to another conversation that I had had years previously with someone else who followed Jesus. And I remember them telling me their conversion story. And they said to me, well, well James, it was amazing. I literally saw light. I felt light. I saw light. And in that moment, my life was changed. I knew that Jesus was the son of God. And my life was turned upside down. I knew God's love through Jesus Christ. And it was different. And, and they said the rest of the family thought I was crazy because I had 
changed so much in that moment. I cried for days. I, I was just a new person as I understood the truth. Now, I remember thinking to myself, look, I guess when I become a Christian, I've got to see the light too. I mean, I've literally got to see light and to feel light or, or got to see some kind of a fire. Is that what's supposed to happen to me? Is that what conversion is? Well, the thing is, sometimes it is like that. Sometimes it is like Saul the persecutor and people's lives are radically changed on the spot. Well, other times we find ourselves in a place where we say, look, I don't really remember a time when I wasn't following Jesus. My parents, as I was growing up, did an amazing job of showing me the truth of Jesus. And maybe for others, the journey could feel like just like that, like a journey. It's like, well, you know, you didn't used to follow Jesus and now you do. And somewhere along the journey, things must have changed. But it's difficult to pinpoint exactly where. Now, our conversion stories can be radically different. But here's what's true. At some point, noticed or unnoticed, there is a conversion moment for the Christian. Now, what we're going to see this morning is, is this story of Saul's conversion, and we are going to see the essential ingredients of conversion. We're not going to look at what it has to look like. We're going to look at what it contains, and that's a very important and fine distinction. It's not about what it has to look like, but it's more important about what it contains. Let me show you what I mean by that. Let's stay on the theme of food. Think about cheesecake. Cheesecake. You have to have some ingredients in the recipe to make it a cheesecake. Cream cheese, cream, sugar, and a crust. I've never made it before, so I, I'm just kind of guessing there. But I know with a cheesecake, you can have different toppings, you can have different colours, and you can have loads of different flavours. They can be different. But you need the cream cheese, the cream, the sugar, and the and the crust. That must be there in order for it to be a cheesecake. I want us to think about conversion like that. It's not about what it has to look like, but it's about what it does contain. Now we're going to look at Acts chapter 9. We're going to see a man named Saul famously on the road to Damascus. I'm going to use his names interchangeably, Saul and Paul. Now, Big, a common misconception is that we think that his name was changed at the point of conversion. That's not really the case. Saul or Shaul is his Hebrew name and Paul or Paulos is his Greek name. And for the majority of Acts, he's ministering in Greek-speaking context. So it makes sense to use a Greek name, Paul. But it turns out on this journey, an event goes down in history. Many regard his conversion to be one of the most important moments in church history. So as we look at his conversion, I want to ask the question, what are the ingredients of conversion? What is at play in his conversion? How should we be understanding conversion? Now, what we're going to see is three essential ingredients here. We're going to see the confrontation. We're going to see the clarity and we'll see the change. The confrontation, the clarity and the change. Three ingredients. So let's look at the first one the confrontation. Now, in the first couple of verses, Luke, the author, introduces us to Saul, who is breathing threats and murder. And he's wanting to find followers of Jesus to bound them up and take them away with him. And so Saul, we know, breathing these threats and murder is, is dead against Jesus and his followers. I mean, he's someone who's totally absorbed with a passion to get rid of the followers of Jesus from the face of the earth. 
And for him, it's, it's not enough just to break up the church over in Jerusalem. But now he set his sights over 120 miles away in Damascus. And he needs to hunt any followers of Jesus so that he can bring them back bound up. And, and then here, right here, to, to show Saul's unmoved and kind of morbid brutality, Luke mentions that, that Saul is after both men and women. So he doesn't care if he takes away fathers and mothers. I mean, he has such an intense hatred for Jesus and his followers that he felt any suffering that he inflicts on them is just and it's deserved. And so Saul, with his cruel henchmen, are nearing Damascus in their effort to squash this divisive Christ myth. And it's here that a confrontation happens. Let's see what happens. Verse five, uh, verses 3 to verse 5. And now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling on the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You see that there is a confrontation. Paul is confronted, but not by a follower of Jesus, by the son of God, Jesus himself. But let's ask a question here. What is this confrontation like? What's a conversion confrontation like? Well, I think we can find at least four handles to hold on to right here. Firstly, is that confrontation, this confrontation is about direction. Saul, Saul, where are you going? So what are you doing? Now, he's not just facing Damascus in his journey, but he's, he's, he's against God spiritually. Do you ever have those moments growing up where your parents caught you doing something mischievous? I feel like for me and my brother, this happened so often. And particularly when dad would come home from work, we would be up to no good, maybe dismantling something in his workshop outside or upstairs doing something. And then and then he would poke his head around the corner and see what we were doing. And we would be caught red handed and we would have this kind of deep, stern, baritone growl. And he said, boys, stop. And we just kind of froze still. We had been found, found out and confronted. Now, Paul is confronted in his direction. You know, as, as people, our hearts are naturally against God and his ways. Without Jesus in our lives, we, we are naturally at odds with God. So, so without Jesus, we, we are naturally going in the wrong direction, even not without being aware of it. And it's in this place that Paul is confronted. What are you doing? Where are you going? So firstly, the confrontation is di about direction, but also the confrontation is personal. We see right here that Jesus says his name twice. Saul, Saul. I mean, this is actually Jesus actually saying Saul's name. I mean, this is showing us something about conversion is that it's having God confront you. It's personal. I love C.S. Lewis's uh, writings about his own conversion. He says this, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen, night after night, feeling that whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady and unrelenting approach of him who so earnestly, I so earnestly desired not to meet. 
that which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in. I admitted that God was God. I knelt and prayed. And perhaps that night, I was the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. Now, I have, I have another quote here from a famous poem called The Hound of Heaven, written by Francis Thompson in the late 1800s. I love the opening words of this poem. I fled him down the nights and the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down labyrinth, the labyrinth ways of my own mind. In the midst of tears, I hid from him under the running laughter. Up vistered hopes I sped. I shot, precipitated adown titanic glooms and chasmed fears. Fled from those strong feet that followed after. Followed after. You see, there is a personal pursuit in this confrontation. Well, thirdly here, the confrontation is loving. And I don't want anybody to miss this. The confrontation isn't just personal or about direction. It's also loving. You know, so often in life, we face confrontations for many different reasons. I, th I think for some of us, some of the worst memories in our entire lives have got something to do with a confrontation. Perhaps some of the hardest things you've been through over the last little while are because of a confrontation. You know, sometimes it can be a bully who crushes everyone around them and they just are confrontational in everything that they do. You know, sometimes it's because someone feels threatened, so they confront. Sometimes it's because someone isn't thinking straight and they let the underlying aggression get the better of them. And sometimes confrontation can happen because of clash of preferences. I mean, there's loads of reasons we face confrontation. But this confrontation right here is driven by love. It's a loving confrontation. You know, later on in the book of Acts, Acts uh, chapter 26, Paul is retelling his conversion story and he adds a little sentence or he, or he tells us something that's not recorded in Acts chapter 9, where Jesus asks him the question and then he says, it, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. <laughs> it's a strange thing to say. I wonder what that means. Well, well let me explain. Goads are the pointy sticks that, that shepherds would use to keep the sheep in line. And so what we don't read here in Acts 9, we do read in Acts 26, is that Jesus said to Saul, hey, why are you kicking against these shepherds' goats? Now think about it. How does a shepherd direct the sheep? Well, sheep are notoriously stupid, and so a shepherd needs to care for the sheep by feeding them, by leading them, by protecting them, and showing them the way to green pastures. Because left to their own devices, a sheep is, is going to put itself in danger, Right. Well, that's what's saying here, like Jesus is saying in this conversion story, like, hey, Saul, I'm the shepherd and I'm showing you the way to go. This is a loving confrontation like that of a shepherd with his sheep. And fourthly and lastly here, this confrontation is humbling. Paul is being forced to rethink his whole understanding of God and himself and the world. I mean, think about it. Saul's a Pharisee. All of his confidence was in his religious achievements. He's the man who's supposed to have access to the truth. He knows who God is. But all of a sudden, everything is dismantled and he has to start from square one. I mean, if Jesus really is the son of God, then everything, everything has to be completely changed. Now, he is lovingly pushed. Saul is being lovingly pushed into a corner and forced to concede Saul, you cannot win here. 
He can't do anything but realise that he is wrong, he is a sinner and he needs a saviour. And that's true of any other conversion story too. Becoming a Christian conversion is not just a slight tweak on our lives. It's an entire upheaval on how we see the world, how we see God and how we understand ourselves. I mean, this begins with a loving confrontation. I mean, how else would we be jolted awake into reality? That we are sinners in need of God's grace. And it is the absolute kindness of God for him to stop you in your tracks and show you your sin and your need of him. And without that, we would continue on in our complacency. We would walk with gusto headlong into the illusion of self-saving and self-sufficiency. We would remain deluded by and dead in our sins. You see, conversion, it begins with a confrontation from none other than God himself right here. Now, the first ingredient is confrontation. The second ingredient is the clarity. Let's read verses 6 to verse 9 in this. But rise, Jesus said, and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Verse 7. The men who were travelling with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now we can continue on seeing this story and we meet a character called Ananias. And Ananias is told by God, look, you need to go find this guy called Saul. Lay your hands on him. Ananias, understandably, is a bit reluctant because he knows about this guy Saul. He knows his background and his history and why he was heading to Damascus. But the Lord says to Ananias, look, he's my special, he's a special instrument. I've got a special mission for him. He's going to take my name before the Gentiles, before kings and the children of Israel. So Ananias goes, he ends up laying hands on Saul and it says something like scales fell from his eyes. And then he rose, was baptized and it finishes with take and taking food. He was strengthened. You see something of an irony in this story. He saw physically, but he didn't see spiritually. And when he didn't see physically, he sees spiritually. It kind of reminds me of Samson in the book of Judges in the Old Testament. He sees, but he doesn't see. And then when he doesn't see, he actually sees. But what is Saul given here? He is given clarity. Now, we can't talk about the concept of conversion without talking about clarity. And in particular, clarity in two ways. Faith and repentance. Now, these are both two sides of the same conversion coin. Both of these happen when we are given clarity. We see Jesus clearly. Repentance is, oh no, I see my sin. Faith is, oh yes, I see Jesus. It's that, oh no, oh yes moment. That's what I mean by clarity. That's conversion. So let's have a look at these two. Seeing ourselves clearly, repentance. This literally means to turn to recognise our sin and to turn to Jesus. And, and I think we're seeing this through something really interesting in Saul's story. Now cast our minds back to the Old Testament, to his namesake. Remember that character? King Saul, the first king of Israel, who had a good start, head and shoulders above everyone, but his reign plummeted and he ended up pursuing the future King David. 
Now there's connections here between this Saul and the Old Testament Saul. Both of them are in the tribe of Benjamin. Both of them are pursuing and attacking a Davidic king. And the Old Testament Saul was a pursuer and didn't see what was true. The New Testament Saul is a pursuer and doesn't see what's true. And amazingly, the New Testament Saul, he gets asked the question, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In the Old Testament, we have David, the future king, asking Jonathan, Saul's son, what have I done? What's my guilt? Very similar questions. Crucially, though, in the Old Testament, we see that King Saul was deluded. I think this is so interesting and it's telling us something that this this Paul, this Saul in the New Testament now has a clarity. The delusion is no more. He can see what's true. He has a grip on who he is before God. I think about Philippians chapter three as as Paul kind of recounts a little bit of his conversion. He finishes by saying, and I counted it all as loss. I mean, this is kind of like a forsaken disposition. It's a repentant spirit within him. So there's repentance, but there's also faith. He sees Jesus with a clarity, faith. Now think about this, three days of darkness following meeting Jesus. There is this meeting of the bright Jesus on the road and then the darkness. I mean, why the time out? (laughs) Why? Well, simple. He is having to rethink his entire worldview. You know, the the Jesus, it's you moment (laughs) is now being translated and filtered through his thinking. I mean, this is what happens in conversion, doesn't it? We have to reorganize everything we thought we knew. There's a new filter for life. I mean, it's like these three days. You know those, those times when you're asleep at night and somebody, maybe one of the kids, kind of obnoxiously turns the light on. And imagine you don't have one of those uh, energy bulbs that takes forever to warm up. You've got one that's bright and right in your face. I mean, you kind of stagger around a little bit, don't you? Just kind of think, oh, I can't see anything. Why is that? Because your eyes have to adjust. And a few seconds later, you can then kind of see what's going on and and you can make sense of the world around you, right? It's like that's what's happening right here. Someone switched the light on in the middle of the night and it takes a few moments to be able to reorganize everything and be able to see properly. It's like he's fitting together a puzzle. Genesis chapter 3. Or the one who's going to crush the head of the evil one. That's Jesus. Abraham's family being a blessing to the nation. That's Jesus. The rescue from Egypt. Oh, it's pointing to Jesus. The Old Testament sacrificial system atoning for sin. That's Jesus. The new covenant hope. That's Jesus. The spirit dwelling in people. And that we would know God face to face. I was talking about Jesus, Isaiah and the suffering servant. It's Jesus, the son of David, the son of man, the root of Jesse. This is all Jesus. You see, in the moment of conversion, there is the oh no and the oh yes. Oh no, my sin. Oh yes, it's Jesus. The clarity of seeing himself. Saul has that. He sees that he needs the savior, Jesus. He sees it all now. And in every conversion story, that's true. At the age of three years old or 103 years old, there is sight. At some point, we realize somebody turned the light on and now it's all opened up. We know in not every conversion story, it's articulated like that. Sometimes we find ourselves saying, well, I just suddenly realized that Jesus is true and everything he said is true or Jesus is everything. And 
Sometimes it's just a sense of, oh, I get it. And then sometimes it's an even quieter acceptance. Sometimes we can say like, like I got on the bus and then I got off the bus. I don't know what happened in the journey, but what I do know is that when I got off, I had been found by Jesus. And it's hard to pinpoint what happened, but I know what happened. Now, I remember the time I got glasses. I was walking around the university kind of complaining about all of the projectors. And I'd sit in the main auditorium and look at the projector and it's out of focus. And I'm complaining about the tech guys. Oh, I think they need to fix the projector. Maybe somebody can sort that out. And then I would go to one of my lectures and say the same thing. Like, that, that projector too. That one needs a new bulb. What's wrong with these people? And then it begins to dawn on me that I'm the one who's not seen properly. So when I get my glasses, I put them on. And it's an amazing moment because I, I see the individual leaves on trees for the first time. I, I see the, the individual bricks within a wall. I, I can look up and see the planes as they come into land at Chicago O'Hare Airport. and can see some of the writing and details on the sides of the plane. I can see it now. It makes sense. I had the clarity. You see, conversion is about seeing who is true. It's the open eyes, lights on, spotlight on Jesus. Conversion is that clarity. So the first ingredient is the confrontation. That leads to the second ingredient, the clarity. But what's the third? The third one is change. The confrontation and the clarity lead to change. Now we know in this account that, that Paul is a, a special instrument. He's a tool to be used to go and reach the Gentiles, the kings and the children of Israel. You see, he's going from murderer to missionary, from persecutor to preacher. And he's set apart in this, in this very different, not average role. Now, there's another New Testament picture here. He spends three days in darkness. Yes, he's reorganizing what's, what's true. He's reorganizing his, his worldview. But it's three days. Who else do we know in the Old Testament? Who else do we know who spent three days in darkness? Think about it. Give you a clue in the deep. Who was it? It's Jonah, right? And then three days in the darkness for Jonah. And then when he gets into the light, he's on a mission to take God's truth to people. Now there's someone else we know, right? Who spent three days in darkness. I'll give you a clue. In a tomb. That's right, Jesus. And when the light dawns, there's a shift in history and there is a new message to be proclaiming. Think about this. The three days of darkness then into the light signifies this new mission. And talk about a change in Saul's life. This new mission now is only possible because a change has taken place. There's a genuine and undisputed change. And he will never be the same. I mean, Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy. I was the foremost of sinners, but now I've experienced mercy. We carry on in Acts chapter 9 and you find Paul proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue. And people are asking, wait, isn't that, isn't that him? Well, yes, but he's changed. He's different. Ananias gets to witness this change firsthand. He sees it all. And here's how to think about conversion. And I want you to follow me here. At conversion, you are made righteous in God's sight because of Jesus's life, death and resurrection. Jesus's perfect obedience, the very thing we could never achieve, never do. It's all ours by grace. Now, here's the thing. You will not see an immediate reality of sinless perfection in your life at conversion. Yes, you are righteous in Jesus, but we have to learn 
how to live into the righteousness that is already ours in Jesus. Look, I want you to hear this nice and clearly. Conversion doesn't surface with an instantaneously perfect life. Rather, it surfaces with, with, a, with a progress, progress with, with growing, with developing, with learning to live into the likeness of Jesus and into the righteousness of, that comes from him that belongs to us. We learn to become who we are in Jesus. At conversion, there is a complete and immediate change in our fundamental identity. And then we learn to live into that identity. I'll illustrate that. You know, when, when, when somebody gets married, that's a shift in identity because all of a sudden you become a husband or a wife. Now, in that moment, you suddenly become a perfect husband and wife. No, you spend the rest of your life learning to live into that part of your identity, learning to be the kind of spouse that your spouse needs you to be. I think about Father's Day last weekend. I love Father's Day because it means I can kind of reminisce a lot of the things about becoming a dad and what that was like. I remember holding my children for the first time. Now, being a dad doesn't make me a perfect dad. I'm a million miles away from that. But being a dad changes my life. It shifts my identity. I am a dad. Now I spend the rest of my life learning to become who my children need me to be. You see that the Christian life is learning to become who we already are in Jesus. Because of Jesus, you are new. You are claimed. You are in God's family. Because of Jesus, you're redeemed. You're justified. You're eternally secure. You're held. You're sanctified. You're regenerated. You're gifted with faith and repentance. You are in Jesus. And now because that is true. We spend our lives living into that changed identity and it leaves its mark on our lives. We grow into what's true. You know what that means? That means we look different. That means that following Jesus has an observable impact on our lives. Knowing Jesus makes a difference. Look, conversion is when we collide with God's grace and it's going to leave more than a mark. Now, this is a bit strange, but follow me. Imagine somebody walks into church one Sunday morning, having been run over by a tractor on one of the footpaths on their way to church. I mean, are you going to sit next to them and, and think nothing has happened? No, if they're still alive, you might say something like, well, what happened to you then? I mean, or maybe if you're really kind, kind you might say, well, can I get you a glass of water? Or, or maybe an ambulance. Look, it's impossible to be flattened by the freight train of God's grace and his mercy and look the same. You can't come into contact with, with the confrontation and then the clarity and be left unchanged. Okay, well, what does this look like? What are some of these changes in our lives? What begins to grow? Well, here's a starter. Prayer begins to move from not being just a pathway to your preferences but it grows into a lifeline of communion and communication with the Almighty. Your sin is no longer just something to shrug your shoulders at, but it's a new war that's waged soberly. Your pride is chiseled and the cracks show as humility slowly makes its home in our lives. Obedience becomes less of a dirty or primitive word and more about the welcomed work of Christ in us. Sitting side by side other saints on a Sunday 
is not just a civilized formality anymore, but it's the obvious interdependent body of Jesus that you really need and they need you. Think about communion, for example. It's not just an empty ritual, but a living, wordless sermon of grace right to you. Your motives begin to be shaped and more and more your life goes from me to God and others. You see, the confrontation and the clarity has brought about the change. But there's more. There's more here. Because you'll fail. You'll get it wrong and you'll lose count of how many times. But you'll know from experience that you can run to Jesus who is liberal with his grace. And you know from experience that he'll cover your shame and your guilt with grace like the daylight of a new morning. You'll begin perhaps to ache for the poor, the oppressed, the forgotten, the sidelined and the hurting. You'll become an advocate. You'll listen actively. You'll love more selflessly. You'll get it wrong again and again and often you won't even see it. But you'll continue to grow in the grace that is already yours in Jesus. The point is this. The Christian life is becoming who we already are in Jesus. Knowing Jesus makes a difference. Conversion involves faith and repentance. But here's the thing. When you collide with God's grace, it's going to leave a mark. The confrontation and the clarity, it's brought about a change. Change because you have met the God-man of the cross, Jesus. Because you've heard him say your name, Saul, Saul, and your soul has been rung like a bell. Because the risen and living Saviour has lovingly confronted you and led you to the green pastures of grace. Now, you might be thinking, look, look this passage is intense. There's a lot going on. <laughs> I'm not sure what to make of it, but what I do know is that I want some of that. And until I have Jesus, I know something's missing and I will never be satisfied. I need Jesus. Perhaps you're there. Now, if that's you, let me invite you to come to the cross of Jesus. Because at the cross, you'll find the confrontation as you'll see what your sin has done. And like the rest of us, you'll begin to realize that you're a sinner in need of grace. The cross will confront. But also, at the cross, we can receive the clarity too. We begin to see that it's not just a first century tragic mistake, but it is the Son of God hanging there in your place and for you. And then from the cross to the empty tomb, we'll come to see a newness of life and a liberty that's on offer for all of God's children. And here's the thing, seeing that, we will never be the same again, changed. And this morning, to conclude this series, we've seen a famous face-to-face -face encounter, a conversion encounter, persecutor to preacher, the murderer to the missionary. And in this encounter, we've seen some essential ingredients of conversion. The confrontation, it's personal, it's loving, it's a pursuit. The clarity. The light bulb's on. Jesus is in view. And the change. Because an experience of God's glorious grace transforms people. It will never be the same again. You see, the confrontation leads to clarity. The clarity leads to the change. Maybe it's time to recapture some of the beauty of this concept. To recapture some of the goodness that we may have forgotten. Or maybe even to see it for the first time. So with wide-eyed wonder and hearts of gratitude, 
May every single one of us watching this morning sit awestruck at God's conversion work in our lives. Amen. What a wonderful truth. Yet not I, but Christ through me. It's been a joy to be together, church family and everyone watching. But now as we go into the rest of our Sundays, may we hear these words loud and clear from Paul's and Saul's letter to the Thessalonian church. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. and May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Go in peace, saints.